let me, let me start firstly by, by asking this question of you. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? We, we live in a world now, don't we, which is just filled with rage. Um, everywhere you look, we're, we're angry about something. You know, I, I remember when road rage was a new thing and it was unusual and, and weird. And now it's, it's a normal part of life. And it's not even the, the strongest part of what we see anymore. We have rage everywhere. Now everything is a cause for rage. And you can vent that rage anywhere you want. Uh, and you're, that's a problem for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is most of that rage, most of that anger is, uh, is sinful. So we're just expressing sinful desires in that, that anger and that rage as we lash out at people who may annoy us or things that annoy us, and, and it's sinful. But, but also... The fact that everything becomes so full of, of rage and everything so quickly makes us angry, it means that when there are things that ought to genuinely and rightly make us angry, that anger, that expression of anger now has no, no value because we have spent all of our rage on things which have no value. And when we need to express it, everybody goes, well, it's just something else to be angry about. Today, we, as we come to John chapter 2, we see one of the few times that we're shown Jesus angry. Uh, he gets angry more than, more than once through the, the Gospels, as, as we see, but this is one of those times. It's the first time that we see him angry. So we're going to read together through John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 12 and read down through to the end of chapter 2. It says, After this... He went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to again learn from your word, to, to see you minister 
to us in these events. Help us to see what we need to change and help us to see you more clearly, more wonderfully in this moment. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage in John chapter 2 is, of course, Jesus cleansing the temple, as we see here. Now, he does this. This is the first time he does it. So in his ministry, he's going to do this twice. So he does it here at the beginning of his ministry on the first Passover that he celebrates in his public ministry. And then uh, in, in a couple more, he'll do it again. So the last one, actually, before he is is crucified, he'll do this again. And that seems to be one of the main trigger points that moves the Pharisees and Sadducees and all to start really focusing on killing Jesus. So it will will happen twice here. The event takes place here during Passover. So Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, it tells us, because of Passover, which means that as he comes into Jerusalem, so is everybody else. The city is filled with people, the travelers from all over who are coming into Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices as the law required and to, to, to worship. So the, the, the city is crowded and filled with people. The temple is going to be filled with people everywhere trying to get their, their sacrifices in and prepare themselves for the Passover. It's busy. And this is one of the most important seasons for the Jews, and that's no secret to most of us as we, we remember what Passover is about and, and how it works. So because Passover is the celebration of deliverance. So it began as God gave it to Israel in Egypt, as they were taken out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt and set free through the wilderness to go into the promised land. So that was a, a celebration of being free from slavery. And then as that progressed as, as God took it from there and expanded it and, and added the sacrifices to it and, and put it into the, the law there, it became a celebration and, and a, a, a feast for the forgiveness of sin. So Jesus walks into the temple. Keep that in mind. Keep it in mind that we are in Passover, one of the most important feast events in Israel. Jesus walks into the temple during Passover and in a season where they are celebrating freedom and deliverance, Jesus sees people bound still in slavery and in slavery to greed and idolatry. That's what he sees when he walks into the temple. Here, Jesus begins his ministry. In this, this moment, he begins his public ministry by revealing that he is the deliverer. So in a celebration of deliverance, Jesus is going to reveal that he is the true deliverer. And that's what this is really all about here. It's not uh, a story about anger and whether uh, our anger should be righteous or unrighteous. The Bible does speak about that. But that's not what's happening here. It's a much bigger picture. So let's walk our way through this a little bit and see what's going on and what's taking place here. The first thing we look at is a defiled temple. Jesus walks in and he sees a defiled temple, and this is a very sad scene. Uh, verse 14 and 15 put that scene together, and Jesus found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple 
the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Here as Jesus goes in, what has been taking place all this time is they have been selling sacrifices. Uh, and that's what's going on here. This wasn't a new scene to Jesus. So this wasn't the first time Jesus walked into the temple and saw this. He knew this was going on before. It's certainly not the first time. I'm sure that he was angry about what was going on with this. But this was the right time to do something about it. He's beginning his public ministry. He's, he's about to, to start his mission proper here. And this is the right time to show this for all that it truly is. Now, this process and this practice of selling the animals and having the money changes in the, the temple. So where it was at, just so you know, so the, the temple had a number of courts in it. This is all done in the very outer court, the court of the Gentiles. So this is the first court you walk in when you come into the temple grounds at the time. And it's the, the only place that Gentiles were allowed to come in. So if a Gentile was coming to worship, someone who wasn't a Jew, this was as far in the temple as they could go. This is where they had to do their worship of God. So what had happened is while they're doing this all in that, that outer court there, it probably started for a good reason in, in that uh, they were providing a service. You see, part of what happened is, is people from all over, the Jews from all over the world, needed to come to Jerusalem and offer their sacrifices. Now, we, we travel with kids, have you ever travel, had to travel very far with uh, an oxen or a donkey or some other kind of animal or, or like ones that are mentioned here? Uh, you're even trying to bring your, your birds along with you. If you had to take that for a long journey, that adds significant inconvenience to your journey. So the idea was if they provided this service in the temple, you could come from wherever you were and you could come to the temple and you could buy a... Uh, an animal that was worthy of sacrifice. So perhaps this started with that good intent. You know, the law required certain sacrifices, and it required those sacrifices to be of a certain quality. And so by doing this in the temple, then you could supposedly make sure that your sacrifice was what it should be. So the people were providing at least seem to be providing a, a good service. Now, I'm sure that there were other ways this could be done and other places this could be done that would have been better. But of course, as we know with so many things in life, this soon became a place of corruption. Uh, the idea of selling these things. So the prices for the animals for sacrifices began to rise and rise and rise and rise to where they were exorbitantly expensive. And even to the place where historians and all tell us that there was almost, probably by this time, there was almost no chance that if you brought your own sacrifice to the temple, that it would be considered worthy to be sacrificed. You would have to sell it to them and buy another one. So it was a, a great corrupt process that was all going on here. Huge fees were being charged for the, the temple tax because you needed to use the particular coins for it. In fact, in um, just before Jesus, so in 54 BC, so some years before that, the uh, uh, Romans raided the temple. And in raiding the temple, they took the money of the treasury. There was 
by our currency today, by giving a rough estimate of what it would today, the Romans took out of the temple treasury five and a half million dollars, which it all come in through temple taxes and selling sacrifices. So this was a money maker for the religious. Who is profiting out of all this? The religious leaders. They're making the money. Corruption is rife. But it's not just about selling sacrifices. In this, what we're seeing is we're seeing selfish worship. The temple was an important building. The purpose of it was that it was a place of worship. It was somewhere they were to come and to worship God. Now, as we come here and as we look at what's going on and we see Jesus angry at what's going on here, Jesus' problem and what, what motivates Jesus into this anger isn't the disrespect of a building. So Jesus isn't upset because the ground is, is covered in mud and dirt and filth from these animals and, and all of that. Jesus isn't upset because there's animals in the temple or because of what's going on, because it's, it's dirty. Jesus is upset, not because it's disrespecting a building, but something much greater than that. The tragedy of this scene is greed. And not just greed, like we see from the, the religious leaders, but the utter selfishness of the worship that is happening in the temple. The temple, which was designed to be a place of worship for God, had become a place of idolatry, of self-worship. Greed was desecrating the temple, but so was laziness, lazy worship. This, this, this all could have been done somewhere else, outside of the temple, in the market, or somewhere else it could have been done. It didn't have to be done in the temple. But why did this practice keep continuing? Why... Why did no one stand up and say, look, this shouldn't be done in the temple. This, this needs to be done somewhere else. Why, for all of these years, did this practice keep going? Convenience and ease. It was laziness. We all knew the greed fed the laziness, the laziness fed the greed, and so it went round and round. The people knew, if I go to the temple, I can get my sacrifice there. And the people at the temple knew... If the people come to the temple know they can get the sacrifice, we can get the money, everybody wins. This was lazy worship. They were supposed to be bringing their offering. See, the part of the sacrifice and, and all that wasn't just the sacrifice. I mean, that was the, the sort of the pinnacle of it all. But part of the sacrifice was finding and bringing the animal. Finding the, the ones that, either, even if you had to buy it from somebody else or go somewhere else because you weren't an animal raiser, part of the process of it was going through the effort of the worship to go and find what God had asked and then bring it of yourself. Here, the crowds of people who, who were here, they, they hadn't come prepared to worship. They'd come to the temple expecting the temple to provide for them to worship. Now, we don't worship at the temple anymore. The temple, it represents, represents people. It's a place designed by God for worship. Through sin, this has been turned into a place of idolatry. And just like 
the, the temple, the physical temple was like that. So it's true of people. We were designed by God for worship, to worship God. But sin has turned our lives, our temple, which was designed for worship, into a place of self-worship, idolatry. For believers, this picture is much more personal. Because it's true, every single person is created to worship God. But for believers, when we believe in Jesus, this whole picture becomes much more personal because, because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. We are told that we are the temple of God, both individually and corporately. So as individuals and as a church, we have the presence of God. Paul writes to this uh, somewhat in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, let me just find that here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And he says, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We are built as a people, as believers, into a body for the worship of God. And just like it did here in Jerusalem, just like it does before we're saved, greed selfishness and laziness can affect our worship too we too many christians come to to worship and come to to god whether it be corporately or individually with the the idea of what's in it for me come to god's word what what will it do for me when we come to church what will i get for me how can i be served what will happen for me what has the church got to offer for me we want to come and have everything prepared and everything ready and everything done for us. We must come prepared. When we come to worship, either privately or corporately, we must come prepared. Now some of this today is going to be fairly close cutting and hard hitting, but it gets better. And that's the point of what Jesus is trying to do here. But the thing we need to understand at the beginning is this, worship is inconvenient. It means I have to go out of my way. I have to do things which are inconvenient and troubled because worship is not about me. It's not about what I get out of it. Worship is about God. So in this sad scene, we see a very strong response from Jesus. It tells us in verse 15 that he takes some cords that he finds and he makes a, a scourge, a, a whip with this. And he scourges the, the people and the animals and drives them out of the temple. It is the defilement of the temple and worship which made Jesus angry. The attitude of the people, what was happening in the hearts of people here is what makes him angry. You know, we talk often, not often, but we hear the saying sometimes and talk of it that uh, about God being angry at sin, uh, but we rarely consider that seriously. 
how angry God is at sin. This is Jesus angry at sin. Jesus wasn't angry because the temple of the floor the floor of the temple was getting dirty. Jesus was angry because hearts were dirty. Not the temple. This feast that they were here for, the Passover and the sacrifice and, and all that, that they were there for, which was the focus of the people, was being mocked. The Passover, the very idea behind Passover in the process of all this, was being mocked by the people as they offered these sacrifices like this. Now Jesus driving out the animals and turning over the things, that, that was no small feat. And some may look at this and say, well, that, that seems kind of mean. Jesus goes, this is people's livelihood. That's how they, now Jesus has, has turned over their tables and he's let their birds go and their birds are flying. That's their money. That's their job. The animals are now roaming through the, the city and people can just take it and steal it. Jesus, that, that seems very mean of Jesus to do this and because it, it, it hurts the people that are there, who may very well have been trying to do the right thing. You know, sometimes we talk about God hating sin but loving the sinner. And usually that statement is made to play down sin. But the truth is, sin inextricably lives in the sinner. There is no way to judge sin without inflicting personal pain. Jesus is just about to tell them the love part. It's coming. This is where the cross comes in. And this is what this whole passage is moving us toward to see. But here we first see that sin is judged. Just as Jesus judged sin in the temple, so he must judge sin in the temple of our life and even in the temple of our church. To us, judgment for sin often doesn't look fair. We might look at this and say, well, it's not fair that Jesus just... Surely he could have done it another way, expressed his anger another way, or he's just flown off in rage here. But, but the way that, that God judges sin, sometimes it is very confronting, and sometimes it is very ugly. War, famine, disease... They don't seem fair. They're very confronting and they're very ugly, but they're very often God's judgment on sin. Sometimes God's judgment on sin affects our daily life, like the clearing of the temple here. Sometimes the judgment of God, even on his people, seems very harsh. Ananias and Sapphira? That seems hard. Truth is, whether it seems unfair, whether it seems harsh, or no matter how it affects us, the truth is that the judgment that God brings on all of us is much less than we deserve at this time. This is a small picture that God judges sin. Now this judgment has purpose. It's not just vindictive. Jesus isn't just here in the temple throwing things around just because he wants to be vindictive. Jesus drives them out of the temple. So he's come in and he's judged and he's driven this out of the temple. And so in this, we see the picture that Jesus came 
not to just judge sin, but to drive it out. To drive sin out. We see here as we look, not just a, a sad scene in a defiled temple, but we also see a passionate God. Verse 16 continues, And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. In this statement, and in this moment, Jesus claims the temple. The temple is his. Why does this make Jesus angry? Because it's his house. It's where they were supposed to come and worship him. My father's house, he says. That statement is a claim of deity, is a claim of authority over the temple. Just like the temple is, so we are his. Everyone, every single person is God's. He is our creator. He is our king. We are his. He has authority over all of us. He has the right to expect honor from all of us. Because the temple is for worship. If we are his, this is because he has created us, because he's designed us, because he is the king of all. If we are his, then our duty is worship. If it's his house, he is to be honored in it. Our lives are not our own. The great purpose isn't to find personal fulfillment. That's not what our design in life is, to find personal fulfillment. Just as the temple was designed for worship, so everyone is designed for worship. When we live in pride, when we live in greed and selfishness and laziness, we defile what was created for beauty and holiness and honor. When a church becomes about meeting my desires, we are no longer a house of worship. This is something that God takes very seriously. The temple is for Jesus. And God will protect his glory. Jesus isn't only saying that he has authority, pardon me, over the temple because he is God. He is also saying that the temple is for him, that the temple is about him. This is why the disciples remembered Psalm 69 and verse 9. That's what's quoted there. That is, he is zealous. He is passionate about this. And in his zeal, he will protect his glory. What was happening, what was happening in the temple here was a violation of the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20. She'll have no other gods before me. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus defining what is the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In Isaiah 48 verse 11 it says, For mine own sake... Even for my own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted and I will not give my glory to another? Every life is to be lived for the glory of God. 
This is what sin is. Sin is when we live our life for ourselves and not for the glory of God. We rob God of the glory that he is due. Just as Jesus is passionate about his honor and about his glory, so we should be passionate about the honor and glory of God. We need to be passionate about Jesus. We've recognized that truth. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have recognized that Jesus is indeed Savior and King and Lord. And we've submitted ourselves to him and we've given ourselves to him and we recognize that our life is for worship. And so we give our lives in worship. We know that. We know our life. We know our church is for, for worship. And so our life is to passionately proclaim the glory of God, to be passionate about Jesus. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, uh, says this, Brethren, let every Christian among the members of Christ be eaten up with the zeal of God's house. Who is eaten up with the zeal of God's house? He who exerts himself to have all that he may happen to see wrong, there corrected. Desires it to be mended, does not rest idle. Who, if he cannot mend it, endures it, laments it. Christian, be passionate about God's glory in this world. Don't be passive. Get angry when his name is defiled. When his will is perverted. Be passionate about being a glorious temple for God. Verse 18 brings us to see a purified people. It says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, And wilt thou rear it up in three days? Well, the truth was, it it did take it that long, but the temple was still in construction phase at this time. So a a temple which will take some, well, I think almost 80 years or up in the end to build. They're saying, you think you can do that in three days? Because they've missed the point of what Jesus is saying. But he spake of the temple of his body. Where we're going with this, where Jesus is going with this, is he is now showing us that he has the power to make new. The power to change. And so he brings in the resurrection. Here is how we know this isn't just about dirty floors. Okay, I began saying this isn't just because Jesus isn't just angry because of what's going on. He's angry about something bigger. And this is how we know it because of the answer that Jesus gives here. This tells us what this is all about. It's not just about dirty animals and noise in the temple. When Jesus was asked what gives him the right to do this, Jesus puts the focus on himself. This is about me, he says. The temple is about Jesus. Life is about Jesus. So the passage begins with Jesus angry about sin. And it ends telling us that's why he's there. He's there because of the sin. And this is about what he will do. The temple is defiled. And Jesus 
is going to make it new. He's going to renew it. He is going to die for the sins, the very sins that defile the temple. How can God love the sinner and hate the sin? By standing between us in judgment. By taking the affliction. By bearing the pain. And then, having driven out sin, destroying what is defiled, he will rise again and become new. Make new this life. Jesus isn't in the temple here just to show how angry he is. He is there to reveal how he is going to fix it. How he's going to make it new. How he makes us new. Why can we as believers truly say that we are the temple of God? Why can we say as a church that we are the the temple of God? Because Jesus makes new. He has made us new. He has driven out what defiles us. And he has cleansed us so that we can worship him in purity. We know well some of the verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, perhaps. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 says, Now ye know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That is, you're in there somewhere. And none of those things are, uh, are good. They all keep you out of heaven. And then verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And of course, many of us are familiar with how this chapter ends in verse 19. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. He paid the price. He endured the suffering. Our lives, our temple are no longer motivated by greed and pride and selfishness, but praise of Christ. And Jesus can do this. Because he rose from the dead. It ends, our passage ends in kind of a transition moment here in the last couple of verses, which tells us that Jesus knows the real followers of his. The question that comes as the passage ends, because some believe, the disciples believe, but many believe on him because of the miracles, it tells us. The question that comes to us then is is this, are you committed to Jesus? It says that Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew their heart. Are you committed to Jesus? Many people began to follow Jesus here. But it tells us they followed because of the miracles. So they are following Jesus for the very same reason the temple was defiled. Selfishness. What's in it for me? This Jesus dude does miracles. There must be something in it for me. We will soon find out that when they realize who Jesus is, almost all of these people who are following Jesus disappear and in fact become antagonistic to him. 
They followed him in selfishness. Again, we see the real power of this moment. Verse 22, it tells us that while many people followed because of the miracles, the disciples believed. The disciples believed. Do you truly believe Jesus? Has he made you new? Or are you following him for what you can gain personally from him? Every single one of us was created for worship. We were created to worship God. And in worship of God, we find our greatest satisfaction. Will you believe Jesus is Savior today? Believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose again to drive out the uncleanness of your life? If you haven't believed Jesus is Savior and you, you want to know more, just hold on as this service finishes. At the end, there'll be a, a screen with the details on it. Can you get in contact with me and, and just say, here, can you, can you help me know more? And I will help you understand what Jesus means. I ask this question, are you committed to Jesus? Because we also understand here that he may not be committed to you. God isn't for everyone. Now understand what I mean by this. If you are his child, if you have genuinely believed him, God is for you. He is for you in every possible way. But see, Jesus knows our heart. and He knows why we're following him. He knows if we've truly believed him or not. Salvation doesn't come simply because you like Jesus. Salvation comes because you believe Jesus and you truly worship him. As I said, the sad truth is most of these people will abandon Jesus soon because they hadn't truly believed. This passage isn't a passage to show us how angry God is. It does show us that. But that's not what its point is. The passage is to show us how loving God is. Like the temple, your life is defiled by sin. Living in pride and selfishness and greed. And Jesus has come to drive out that sin from your life. So that you could be a true temple of worship. He can do this because he died. He died for sin. He paid the price. He stood between you because God must judge sin and he endured that judgment. And then he rose again three days later. He has the power to cleanse and he has the power to give new life. Believer, you have been washed. You have been cleansed. Your life is now a living, pure temple of God. Live your life in worship. Be zealous for the glory of God. Yes, it's inconvenient and it's costly. But it's not about you. Our lives and our church are places of worship. So let us passionately give ourselves in worship to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to learn from you, to see, yes, what makes you angry, but also how you came to deal with that. 
that yes, you are angry at sin, but you came to make us alive from that sin. We pray today that if there is someone listening here today or in the future that that hears this and, and needs to know more about Jesus, that they would call on you as their Savior. And also that we, as your people, might be reminded that our life is for you. It is for worship. May we give ourselves in passionate honor in everything we do for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.